thankful for the privilege to preach tonight one more time. I am leaving in roughly two weeks. I'm very excited about going back to school. One of the things they taught us at school, one of our professors, he really impressed it upon us to study and work on it, was supposed to have what he called a pre-talk. You know, before you get into reading the scriptures and get into the rest of your sermon, you're supposed to really work on it because if you don't really write it down, well, then you can end up wandering and talking about all kinds of random things that don't apply to anything and really embarrass yourself. So I did write a few things down, and one of those things I did write down is thankful to be going back to school in a couple of weeks and also pray for me as I'm now have two sisters to take care of. So that's going to be a tremendous burden and add to my school load. But I'm sure they'll do great. I'm excited that Ruthie's going to be coming out there to school as well. And one thing also is it's been a blessing to be home this summer. There's been some fun times and some scary times and such. But even through all of that, it's been a huge, tremendous blessing to be home and to see so many of you that I've grown up with still in the same places serving God and continue to be faithful And that's just a blessing to me personally, and I pray that you would continually to do that. And I could preach a whole sermon on that, but it wouldn't go with my notes, so I think I'm just going to stick with them. So think about this. One of the most disappointing experiences of the entire human race is something that starts well. It has a great beginning, and yet even though it has this tremendous beginning over here, it has a horrible ending. The great beginning, it increases your expectations only to cause them to plummet to these inconceivable lows. Like, I've read many books that they have this great, exciting beginning. And you're like, this is going to be my new favorite book. And you get through the first couple of chapters. And as you get through those, and you get to the rest of the book, the following chapters cannot deliver what the previous ones had promised. And when you get done, you feel like you wasted however long it took you to read that book. And it's horrible. Or movies that have a great beginning and don't have a happy ending. Or even one of the most amazing inventions of mankind is something called the double scoop ice cream cone. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You not have just one scoop, but two. You start off with one flavor, and when you get through with that one... There's another flavor in there. It's pretty awesome. The problem with this can be is if you make bad choices, you can start off with that wonderful strawberry ice cream, which happens to be my personal favorite. But when you get to that second flavor, which may be chocolate, and it causes you to induce this violent retching of your stomach, it's got a great beginning because the strawberry is there, but the chocolate could cause horrible problems. And that may be a silly illustration. But... Consider tonight a certain king of Judah. It's the 41st year of his reign. His kingdom has borne the unmistakable marks of a nation that had set itself to seek God. When he ascended the throne as a young man, he had sought God. He had torn down idolatry. He had built great cities and amassed great armies. His reign is actually one of the longest of any king of Israel. But despite all that we see in his life, the king is dying. And he's not dying of old age. He's dying of an incurable disease. Within that very year, he will be gone and buried. 
And in spite of his previous glory, the kingdom, it's been digressing. In his recent years, his judgments of the people have been increasingly oppressive. And even Hanani, the prophet of God, is currently in prison for going against what the king had said. How could a king, such a wonderful king, one who had been blessed by God, die an angry old man with rotting feet? How could this happen? Well, tonight, this man, his name was Asa. He was the king of Judah. Last week, Andrew talked about a man who was also king of Judah, and his name was Jehoshaphat. Tonight, we're going to get the rest of the story. We're going to go back, and we're going to talk about his father, who is actually Asa. And we're going to, tonight, let's consider the life of Asa. And the writer of the book of Chronicles, this is where if you could turn to Second Chronicles in chapter 14, the writer of the book of Chronicles is trying to show the people of Israel why they had been carried away to Babylon. Because he wanted them to learn from their own history. Tonight, let's take a sketch of his life that we can understand how this could come to pass. Something with a great beginning could have a terrible ending. So we're, just, we're not going to like, right, currently we're not going to just stop and read a long section of scripture, but we're kind of just going to work through it. So in verse, chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 14 and verse 1. So Abijah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David and Asa his son reigned in his stead. In his days, the land was quiet ten years. And Asa did that which was right, which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. For he took away the altars of the strange God and the high places and break down the images and cut down the groves and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. It says in verse 6 that he, and he built fenced cities in Judah for the land had rest and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. So we find Asa. He takes over the throne. And he sets himself to seek God. And he commands the land of Judah as well with him to seek God. And you know what? He starts tearing down idols. And he starts abolishing these idolatrous practices that were detrimental to the lives of the Jewish people. And we find that God gives him rest. He did what was right. He was one of the few kings in all that ever ruled the land of Judah or Israel, the northern ten tribes. He's one of the few kings that it could be said that he sought God. In the Kings of the Crown, it says that his heart was perfect towards God. He sought God with his life. And he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result of this, the peace and prosperity and the blessings of God the very thing that every king would ever hope for, even in our modern days, what do they want? They want peace and they want prosperity. A good economy and a good foreign policy. That's what you need to be a good king. And this is what was happening to Asa. It was a good beginning. It was the strawberries on top. But yet, even as things are going great, in verse, chapter 14 and verse 9, I mean, in verse 8 actually, it talks about his army. Asa had an army of over 500,000 men all counted. But yet, even with this great army for protection, 
in verse 9, And there came out against them Zerah the Ethiopian, with a host of a thousand thousand and three hundred chariots, and came into Marisha. Even though prosperity and things are going well, his first trial as king, this would be his first major conflict. This was a conflict that was big enough to wipe out the entire land of Judah, to slaughter every person. If we look at even just the numbers, even though he does have a large army, and they said that they're men of valor, they're outnumbered two to one, more than two to one. And plus, not only are they outmatched and outnumbered, the Zerah, the Ethiopian, he has a technological advantage. He has over 300 chariots. Now, in our days, we have tanks and Apache attack helicopters and A-10 warthogs and F-16s and F-22s and all kinds of different numbers that represent various aircraft and such. In these days, it was mainly footmen, and then you had the chariots, which would have been, you know, kind of like a two-wheeled car. You've seen them in pictures, and you imagine them. You may have seen Ben-Hur movies and such where they have chariot races. They actually do have chariot races to this day, which is kind of cool in my personal opinion. But these chariots... They were the battle machine of their day. If you, imagine, imagine if you're fighting in a battle, and you're down here, and they said he had the men that carried the spears, and the men that shot the bows. But this is a chariot. There would have been at least two horses, maybe four or six, depending on how they would have arranged this particular chariot. And there's armor in the chariot that the guy's standing behind. And these chariots are going at full speed, charging into you. They could run you over and trample you down. How are you going to stop it? They were outmatched. It was about to go down. Things were not going to end well for Asa. And although, you know, we find there's little historical evidence of who this Zerah was or why he was attacking the land of Israel, it is clear from the biblical account that this was an impossible situation. And in fact, actually, Zerah's army, or an interesting fact that I found as I studied this, Zerah's army, it's the largest army amassed that's ever recorded in Scripture, minus the Revelation accounts. The actual army that was ever amassed in the biblical times is this army is coming against them. And in verse 14, or sorry, chapter 14, verse 11, we find one of the simplest and most beautiful expressions of faith. If you'd read there with me. I'm sorry, verse 11. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. When faced with this point of conflict, when faced with an impossible situation, he as king, it was his job to defend, to protect the people of the land of Judah. That was his responsibility. And yet he realized that he could not defend the people of Israel. Only God could do it. And he even says, it is a small thing. And he understood God's greatness. He wasn't asking for anything impossible with God because God was far greater than Zerah or all of his Ethiopians. He understood this. He was a man of faith. 
And you know what happened in verse 12? So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people that were with him pursued them into Gerar. And the Ethiopians were overthrown, that they could not recover themselves, for they were destroyed before the Lord and before his host, and they carried away very much spoil. This is a pretty awesome story in my personal opinion. They're faced with this impossible situation. They're outmatched two to one. They're outnumbered. And yet, they relied upon God. They trusted in Him. And they set the battle in array. And because of their faith, God smote them. And it said, they're running. And as they're running, they can't even recover. And all they had to do was chase them down and collect all the spoils. Instead of this being an end, a decimation, a genocide, this was actually a time of even more prosperity. Because all they had to do was go chase them guys down and take all their stuff. It was pretty great. I wish kind of we could get spoiled today, but it would be a lot easier to get my school bill. But it's a different story. And as a result of everything that happened, and as a result of this battle, as he's returning, the victory, the people of the land of Judah saw that their God was real. That just like in the land of Egypt, their God could deliver. And he could smite even the largest armies that had ever been amassed. And in verse, chapter 15, in verse 1, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. And listen to verse 7. Be strong, therefore, And let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As they're coming back from this great slaughter and this great spoil, the prophet comes out to meet them with the word of God. And he says, he's telling them, God's delivered you because you've sought him. Now continue in this pathway that you started. And you know what happens? The people of the land of Judah recognize that. And they set themselves as a whole to seek God. And they renew the covenant with God. And they, it says in verse 8 that Judah and Benjamin... Actually, let's read the whole verse. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Obed, Oded, the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with them. What's happening here is God showed up for the people of Judah. And there was no question. In fact, everyone knew, the Ethiopians knew that they were being smote not of Asa, but of God. And the people throughout all Judah knew that God had shown up. And even the people of the northern ten tribes, at this time there was civil war. Not active civil war, but they were separated. 
There was the king Asa in the southern part of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem. And then you had the kings in the northern ten tribes, and they would change out multiple times during Asa's reign because he reigned for 41 years. But even the people in the northern ten tribes, they realized that God was the true God. And many people came down to Jerusalem to worship God. And in fact, in, let's um, begin in verse 11 of chapter 15 again. And this is what happens. As they gathered themselves together to Jerusalem, and it says in verse 11, And they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 7, sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with coronets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath which they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desires. And he was found of them. And the Lord gave them rest round about. This is awesome. They came through a tough time. And they renewed the covenant with God. And they said, anybody who doesn't seek God, we're going to put him to death. Because everyone must seek the true God. Because we have found him and he's been found of us. And God was found of them. And he was their God. And things are going great. In fact, I think the only way to describe what's going on here is just outright revival. A people that had been worshipping idols, that had been despising the God of their fathers, had found him. And the Lord was found of them. And they were together in worship. And there's rest round about. Things are wonderful. And yet, just like when things are wonderful, usually, that's when you're most vulnerable. And when the worst things can happen. And even one thing in the rest of the chapter of 15... Asa was so purposeful about his zeal for God that he, even his own mother, who had partaken in idolatrous practices, she was the queen at this point, and he said, you've taken, partaken in these idolatrous practices, and he removed her from being queen. Now, I have my mother, and she is a very small, petite little lady, and I, even though I am now 21 years old, and I am an adult, and I'm the man of my own man, I'm still a little bit scared of my mother. I'm thankful I don't have to remove her for idolatrous practices. But Asa was so concerned about serving God that even something that would be as scary as that, honestly, he had to do it, and he did it because it was what was right. And yet in this time, it says, in chapter 16, we come to the second turning point of Asa's life, a second major conflict. And... I've asked uh, Brother Andrew and Brother Leland and Brother Jason if they could come up here. We're going to try to illustrate this real quick. So if you guys could come on up. All right. So since the brother-in-law is always the bad guy, we're going to have Brother Leland represent Beisha. If you come over here and stand right here. Now, just imagine for a moment, because north is actually that way. Let's just imagine north is this way. So I know this is my own truth, so don't believe it right now. But just for the sake of illustration, north is this way. So if Brother, ba- uh, Brother Basha right here, if he could stand right here. No, 
In fact, Basha had ascended the throne of Israel through violence and murder and bloodshed. Yep, that's my brother-in-law. <laughs> he was not a nice guy. In fact, he was leading the people of the northern tribes in idolatry, just like the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he had killed Nebat, a different Nebat, to attain the throne. And that's him right here. Now, Brother Jason tonight, he's going to represent for us Asa, the king with the great beginning. And the people, at this point in time, they're serving God. Things are going great. We'll get to Brother Andrew in just a minute. And as these things are going great, like we said, the people from the northern trend tribes over whom Brother Basha, or just Basha rather, is in the king of, they're leaving the land of Israel and traveling down to Jerusalem to partake in this great revival. Now, if you remember Jeroboam, what was his main thing? Why did he start becoming part or partaking in the idolatrous practices? Why did he set those up? Well, he's worried that the people over whom he was king would go back down to Jerusalem, and as they would worship God, he would lose power. Now, God had promised them that that wouldn't happen. But because of that, he led the people to worship idols. And so now the same thing is happening to Baasha. As he's king, the people in his land are leaving and traveling down to Jerusalem to worship God. He doesn't want that to happen because he sees himself losing power. So you know what he does? He's the bad guy. So he wants to stop the revival. So he comes down to Ramah, which is actually, Jerusalem is roughly 60 miles south of there. So pretty close to where he's king. And he blockades Ramah. He builds it up. And it says that no one could go in and no one could go out. This is the problem. He's really close to Jerusalem, number one. And he's the aggressor. And number two, this revival that's supposed to have been happening, it's becoming impeded. Just like when Nehemiah was trying to build the wall and the people of the land did everything they could to stop him. Just like when things are going great and you're trying to read your Bible and things are doing well and revival is happening in your life, the enemy is coming to stop you. And that's what happens. You know what? Baasha, he's the king of the ten northern tribes. And yes, he has large armies. And yes, he's an aggressor in this situation. But he's nothing compared to Zerah the Ethiopian. And you know what? Asa over here, he's mature as a king. He's learned the ways of being a good leader. And the people are looking to him. The people are looking to him to stop this problem, to resolve it. This is a cold war that has been happening here. And now it's broken into a hot conflict. This could end up in a bloody civil war with brother slaughtering brother and the entire land of Israel being wiped out. This could be bad. Even though it's a smaller situation, this could be bad. So you know what he does? At this time here, there's this guy in the north. This is Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is king of Syria. Now, Syria is a large nation at this time and a massive military power. And at this point in time, Baasha, as the king of Israel, has made a league. You want to come over here and make our league with Baasha? And he's supporting him. And because of his support, he's able to have a strong attack on Ramah. Now, Asa, he sits down and thinks, and that's the brilliant king the consummate politician, the master diplomat, and the nefarious spy. He sends his top secret agents 
over to Ben-Hadad. And he takes gold and he takes treasures out of the temple. And he sends them around to Ben-Hadad. Now, Ben-Hadad is way far in the north. So if you could step back to the north. A little farther to the north. A little farther. That's about north enough. So as he's way far in the north, and there is this blockade. No one can get in Jerusalem and no one can get out. He sends these treasures all the way over to Ben-Hadad. And he hires him. He says, okay, I'm going to pay you. And you're going to break the league with Baasha. And so he breaks that league. And he comes in to the land of Israel. And there's the sore cities of Naphtali, far in the north. Now, every general of any modern army, through all through history, they have said, an army, they run on their belly. If soldiers don't have food, soldier ain't going to fight. It's been the story. So Asa hires him to take away the food and the store cities in Naphtali. In fact, he wipes out five different cities and slaughters the inhabitants thereof. Now, here's the problem for Baasha. He's trying to fight a war over here, and his back door just got ripped open, and his whole army got spanked back there. This is not a good situation. He can no longer fight an aggressive battle. So what does he do? He has to move back to Tirzah to sort of form a bit of a blocking against Ben-Hadad. He can no longer fight this war. And while he's over here a little distracted, Asa calls out all the men of Judah, and they come down to Ramah. So if you come down to Ramah over here. And they remove all the things that they were, the bricks that they were building this city with. And they remove them, and they carry them back to the cities of Geba and Gerar, I believe, is the name of the cities. And he builds those, and he fortifies those. You come back over here. He's won the war. It's all over. And what did, he didn't have to kill a single person. This guy's the man. He has done everything right, and he didn't have to shed a single war. He didn't have to lift a hand against his brother. He got Ben-Hadad to do all the dirty work. Basha is now on his throne, unable to fight him, unable to protect his own border. He's done. In fact, in a few years, he will be killed by his own captains, Zimri and Omri, probably as a result of the embarrassment that they received over this. But... The story's over. You guys can take your seats. Thank you so much for doing such a great job. I asked my fellow men in training to help me out, and I thank you for them. If you could all give them a round of applause, it'd be great. Story's over, right? Things are going great. He solved the problem. The people had looked to him, and he had come through. But look in chapter 16 and verse 7. The conflict had been resolved. End of story. But the prophet shows up at the palace. Asa had solved the problem, but God was not pleased with his solution. And let's start in verse 7. And at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth 
thou shalt have wars. Whoa. Asa had been the brilliant king, and yet the prophet shows up. And God is angry because of the rebuke of Hanani. We know that God was angry because why was he upset? Why would God send Hanani to rebuke Asa? And in fact, Asa's response, then Asa was in verse 10. Then Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. And behold, the acts of Asa, first and last, lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Asa, in the thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet. In the thirty-sixth year of his reign, that is when the war with Baasha started. And in the thirty-ninth year of his reign is when this disease happened. And the disease was exceedingly great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers and died in the one and fortieth year of his reign. And they buried him in his own sepulchres, which he had made for himself in the city of David, and laid him in the bed, which was filled with sweet odors and divers kinds of spices, prepared by the apothecary's art. And they made a very great burning for him. So it's 36 year of his reign. By 41... It was all over. Just five years. Just five years. It comes to the point that we saw at the beginning. As we look at a flashback of his life, we see that it had this great start. And it ended very poorly as an angry old king oppressing the people, throwing the prophet of God in prison, diseased in his feet and unwilling to seek God for healing. Because the reason for all of these problems in his life is God had wanted to act on his behalf when it came time for Baasha and the problems there. In fact, Hanani even tells him, the whole host of Syria that you hired and took money out of God's temple to pay him, that whole host, you could have had them too. Never mind Baasha. The bigger cat could have been fried. But because of this one reason, and here's why the rebuke had to come. Because God was unable to act on Asa's behalf. Because Asa had ceased to rely upon God. He relied on the Syrians. He used them to accomplish his means. Okay, hold everything. Hold everything. Remember at the beginning... Remember the strawberry flavor on top? Remember the huge host of the Ethiopians? When Hanani comes and he's rebuking Asa, he says, Hey, remember what happened in the beginning? Remember how God delivered you and you trusted God and it was even in a greater problem? What have you done? How have you forgotten how God can deliver? What has happened, Asa? And Asa responds by getting angry and throwing him in, the, in prison and oppressing the people. And his life that could have ended wonderfully, had a horrible end. Because he had ceased to rely upon God. In fact, in verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect 
toward him. Here and thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. It is so sad. Because God is constantly looking for opportunities to show himself mighty on the behalf of those who serve him. And Asa knew this. He had seen this happen. And yet he had relied upon himself, his own political ability, and the Syrian army, and had denied God this opportunity to show his glory, not only to the people of Judah, but to the people of Basha, and the people who are under Ben-Hadad's control, all of the Syrians. In fact, the whole world of that time could have seen another great victory caused by God's power. Asa had lost the opportunity to destroy the Syrians because he didn't seek God. Asa had seen God deliver in the past, but he still trusted in his own abilities. In fact, Azariah had warned him of the dangers of forsaking God, and yet there is no evidence in this account that Asa even sought God throughout this entire scenario. We find that Asa fought the wrong battles with the wrong opponents because he did not deal with them as a spiritual problem. See, Basha's blockade was a spiritual problem. It was hindering the spiritual revival. And yet he dealt with it purely as a political problem in a completely carnal way. And because he dealt with this problem himself, it resulted in those same people that were in Naphtali, that were slaughtered by Ben-Hadad, those people, given time, might have turned back to God and had an opportunity to also give God glory and worship Him. And yet, because he was fighting the wrong battles... They were wholesale slaughtered by Ben-Hadad. And that blood was on Asa's hands. And in fact, Asa set a pattern for his life. And he died a foolish old king. Yet why? So we know God sent Hanani to Asa. Because Asa's decisions refused God this opportunity to act. And self-reliance denies God opportunities to show himself mighty. God is unable to act on the behalf of his servants when his servants stop relying upon him. God is unable to act. God has all power, but he cannot act on the behalf of a servant who is not relying upon him. In fact, you may have ever watched this movie. I watched it multiple times as a kid. Winnie the Pooh. You know, it's just a cute little kid story. But sometimes there's something interesting in there. And one of the phrases that I've used a lot in my life is, Tigger goes to do something and fails miserably, and rabbits never send a tigger to do a rabbit's job. And that may be a silly illustration, but God can't do what you've already done. And, and we can look at from our armchair quarterback seats and say, wow, what a nerd, he totally messed it all up. But in our own lives, we can still fall into these same traps and what are these problems that you are facing right now? These impossible situations. Maybe we could learn from the life of Asa. William Cowper, an English poet, said, Kings then at last have but the lot of all. By their own conduct, they must stand or fall. Whatever they are, remember the mistakes that Asa made and learn from them. So a few points tonight will be done. First of all, rid yourself of every vestige of the Syrians. Every 
problem you face, you must seek God rather than to others or yourself. Don't rely upon friends or upon family to help. Asa had trusted himself and the ability of the Syrian army. And we can't, in our problems that we face, rely upon our friends or other people. You can't just, sometimes it's very tempting. I'm at school and I do things and I'm trying to make a decision. Sometimes I can just call my dad and say, hey dad, you want to make this decision for me, basically. And yes, that is good. And yes, I call my dad multiple times, all the time rather, trying to get help and advice. But when it comes down to it, my dad is not God. Only God can make to help me make the decisions. You cannot rely on anything else other than God. Remember, unlike Asa, who forgot how God had delivered, you must remember how God had delivered in the past and trust Him rather than your own ability to solve your problems. If you're here tonight and you're saved, you've seen God deliver your very soul from hell. And as you are a Christian... You can see different times in your life that God has delivered. I've seen different times that God has provided for my school bill in different ways and even small things and bigger things. And yet, even as we know that God has the power to deliver and to work on our behalf, yet we can trust ourselves. When it comes to finances, it can be very difficult to trust God. Should you make that move at work from one job to another, Or should you take that promotion? You know, it's hard to make ends meet. And you know that in your life. And maybe in your particular situation, you're trying to make these ends meet. And maybe you feel that you need to take this second job. And you you know, Sunday nights and Thursday nights are going to be done. You're not going to be able to come to church. But you need to solve your own problems. And it's your responsibility to take care and provide for yourself. So you go ahead and take that job. You might end up as an old and angry servant of God with maybe rotting feet. And maybe you're looking at retirement. And maybe you need to make some plans for that. And it can be very tricky to make the right decisions financially so that you can be provided for. But if you rely on yourself to provide for your own needs, whatever they may be, you're going to miss an opportunity for God to work miracles, for Himself, for God to show Himself mighty on your behalf. Finances are a very small thing for God, and yet they can be so large for us, and we can trust ourselves. How can you raise your kids in this wicked environment where as soon as you walk out that front door, their minds are going to be assaulted by every form of wickedness? And if you rely on your own skills to blanket train your kids and to make sure that they're marching in order according to the will of God, if you rely on that and making sure that you spank them regularly three times a day, say, I got this one under control. I spank my kid three times a day and he's going to serve God with his life. Well, that may be helpful to help discipline your children and train him up in the way he should go. But ultimately, you must rely upon God for his help in that situation and to seek him. How can you face temptation? Temptation assaults us every day. And if you rely on your own strength, your own strength to defeat that temptation, you will fail. I will fail. All of us will fail if we rely 
on your own strength. You know, this, this passage, is, it means a lot to me personally. It was fall semester. I was trying to make some decisions as far as what I would do in some certain areas of my life. And I took some time out and I rode my bike out to this little lake. And I just sat down and I was just reading through where I was in my regular Bible. And as I was reading through, I came to this passage. And I realized, I was trying to figure out, like, God, do I do this? Do I do A or do I do B or C? One of these things, you've got to show me from your word. I need a go or a no. I need a go or a no. That's what I was looking for. And as I was reading through, I came to this passage. And it wasn't about a go or a no or a C or a B. It was simply about however I went and whatever decisions I did make, they were simply about relying upon God completely and not relying on my own self. You know, I can, I can stand up here tonight, or I could come down here. You know what, even as the Lord's worked on my heart in this sermon, personally, even this past summer, as I was getting ready to preach, and I, I know I wanted to preach this passage, I may have preached it once or twice before, but I could be reminded that even as I know this and as I've studied this, and God's worked in my life in this way, that every day continually I will forget how God has delivered in the past and how God has acted on my behalf. And yet I will forget how great He is and rely on my own self and my own abilities and talents and think, I got this. It is so foolish because we'll end up with a good beginning and a horrible end. You know, you've got to fight the battles. You must rid yourself of every we must rid ourselves of every vestige of Syrians in our life. And we must remember how God has delivered in the past. And we must fight the right battles with the right enemies. Maybe that coworker that is so unbearable that you start trying to talk bad to him to your boss or Ben Haydad to get him fired so he'll be out of your life. When in fact, that person that was so unbearable was the very person that God had put in your life for you to be an example of godliness to him, to lead that person to the Lord. And now they're destitute because they don't have a job. Yes, they may be a jerk. And yes, it may be impossible. But if you rely on your own strength to be a good person, you will fail. I will fail. And we can learn from the life of Asa in that way. But you know, simple illustration before we end. You know, as I come back here in New York, I work with Brother Henry, and we do construction. And everything is highly regulated. There's safety guys going around making sure you got your hard hat on, and you're wearing your earplugs and your safety glasses. In fact, the thing that I think is the stupidest is if you're using a framing laser, you must put a sign that says, Caution Laser, because if somebody walks up on the floor and gets a laser in their eye, they can sue you for losing their eyesight, which is really hard to do, lose your eyesight with a framing laser. But everything's really regulated. And one of the things that they regulate is if you're working at a height of over six feet off of the floor, of six feet off ground level, there must be either protection in the form of a barrier or you must be wearing what's called a full harness. I've got one of these up here today. This is one we've been working on the scaffolding. And you put this on. This right here on the end is called a lanyard. This is a safety fall arrest harness. So if I fall off, you have to tie this off. It's got a kind of a cool lock on it. You push this one in, and that can't come undone. You tie this off to a solid point, to a fall rope, a lifeline. And then take it, put it on. 
see if we can get this on right. Some other straps you're going to put on. I'm not going to mess with them tonight. And that's got to be make sure everything's cinched down properly. And then you attach that to your tie-off point. And one of the things we do, if you're working on a scaffolding, or maybe there's a, uh, one of the things you have to make sure you're tied off for, is if you're working on a shaft wall. They have those elevator shafts that run all the way through the building. And there's that edge, and then there's a shaft wall, like shaft that goes all the way down. And you have to frame that out and make sure there's a wall there. And as you're moving big, heavy sheets of core board and sheetrock and impact board and CH track and J track and all these different things, you don't want to fall down that shaft. So you wear your harness and you tie off. So in case you fall, it happens, this part right here, it comes out of the slot and it rips. And as those threads rip, it keeps me from dying. It absorbs the shock. Now, unfortunately, even though this is a great system and it's meant to save my life, let's see if we can move this up. Even though it's meant to save my life, if I fall and this catches me, there's still a very good chance of a lot of damage. It could break your hip. It could do all kinds of things. You still, if you fall, job shuts down, everybody goes home. It's a bad day. And you know what? I wear this safety harness because I want to be safe when I need to wear it. But unfortunately, many of us as Christians, we treat God just like we, I would treat this safety harness as a carpenter. You know what? As I'm working on a dangerous position, I don't want to fall. I wear this in case I fall. In case. This is backup. But you know what keeps me from falling? Me being careful. Me not leaning too far off the ladder and falling. I'm not trusting in this harness. It's my backup. It's my backup. I'm really trusting in my skill as a worker to keep me from falling and be safe. Are you trusting in your skill as a Christian to walk the narrow way? God does not want to be your safety harness, your backup plan. God is looking for opportunities to show himself mighty in the behalf of believers. But too many of us, myself included, on a daily basis, treat God like a safety harness to be there in case we fall. Tonight, I beg of you today, rely upon God and wait for his deliverance. God has never wanted to be a backup plan or fall insurance. Throw yourself completely upon the mercies of God, and He will deliver like He had promised. Reliance upon God takes something called faith. But without faith, it is impossible. It is impossible. That is what the Word of God just says. It is impossible to please God. Self-reliant believers refuse God opportunities to show Himself mighty. Thank you tonight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you tonight and I thank you for working in my life on this message. And I pray that you would work in the hearts of those here, that we could love and serve you, but most importantly, that we wouldn't leave to our own abilities, but trust in you. And I pray, amen.